American taxpayers spend zillions of dollars on weapon systems. But what about the veterans? What about the veterans? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Have you ever seen any politician running for office not bend over backwards in praise of military veterans? Have you ever wondered why, if taking care of the health needs of veterans is such a high priority, why there are so many ads on TV begging for money to provide needed care for those same people politicians allegedly care so deeply about? Why do they have to go begging? How could it be that, at least for a few days, Republicans in the Senate could vote against a bill to treat veterans who have been exposed to the myriad of burn pits in American outposts? Mouthing nice words is one thing, but meeting serious health needs of real people, those who have sacrificed and served in our military branches, is quite another, apparently. Now, it's true that many of our VA facilities across the country are in need of updating, but is the answer turning to the private sector for doing the job, serving veterans' needs better than the government can? Of the new book, Our Veterans, Winners, Losers, Friends, and Enemies on the New Terrain of Veterans Affairs by authors Suzanne Gordon, Steve Early, and Jasper Craven, reviewer Stephen Kinzer says, Finally, we have an honest account that contrasts our game day celebration of veterans with the cold realities many of them face in post-military life. That's the end of uh, Steve Kinzer's uh, review. Our guest today is co-author Suzanne Gordon. Thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Thanks for Alive. having me. Thanks, thanks, thanks for having me. Our, uh, Susan Gordon is a senior policy analyst at the Veterans Healthcare Policy Institute and the author of many books, including The Battle for Veterans Healthcare, Dispatches from the Front Lines of Policymaking and Patient Care, and most recently, Wounds of War, How the VA Delivers Health, Healing, and Hope to the Nation's Veterans. She's a frequent speaker before audiences of veterans and VA staff members, healthcare union members, and healthcare reformers around the country, as well as a source to numerous media outlets. She's been a recipient of the Disabled American Veterans Special Recognition Award for her reporting on veterans' healthcare issues. That's certainly a, uh, a distinctive award, I must say. So again, thanks for being with us, Suzanne. How did this book come to be written? What was the motivation for you three to come together to write it? Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, I had been writing about healthcare for about 40, 35 years or more, uh, mostly healthcare systems, nursing, non-physician providers, and patient safety. And I uh, began looking into the VA and I did some consulting. I I work a lot on teamwork issues in healthcare. I actually wrote a book about aviation safety and what healthcare could learn from aviation. And obviously it's interesting because the the military has been a pioneer in in aviation safety and and Mm. teamwork. And I, I was asked to consult with the VA many years ago um, in Palo Alto. And, and, and I, you know, like many Americans, um, you know, we see VA hospitals, we see the, you know, the sign VA clinic, VA hospital here, but we don't know much about what goes on in it. I mean, most Americans don't even know that, that 
the VA isn't called the Veterans Administration, which it was named in 1930, and, and in 1989, Veter uh, Reagan made it a cabinet agency and cabinet level agency, and it, it's now the Department of Veterans Affairs. So VA, you know, people often see VA and they say Veterans Administration, but that doesn't really exist anymore. And um, and I was like a lot of Americans, you know, I thought veteran health care was, was for somebody else, for veterans, right? And I, and I wasn't a veteran, so why should it be interesting to me, even though I wrote about and researched healthcare systems? And I went into the VA and hospital, and um, I was just stunned by the extraordinary care and the complexity of the care that was given veterans and the complexity of veterans' health care issues, which we also sort of don't know a lot about and which actually feeds the privatization movement because a lot of doctors and <clears throat> other healthcare professionals in hospitals think, oh, you know, a patient's a patient to patient. I'll be glad to, to, you know, thank them for their service and do my bit taking care of the odd veteran here and there, thinking that, that there's, there's somehow no different between you know you and I as a patient and an, and a veteran as a patient, and what I learned was that there's a lot of difference, and that the VA system is great. But I I learned a lot, you know, about really began understanding that that serving in the military, and this is something we write about a lot in the book, and I think it's really important, um, one of the most important parts of the book, because we think of military service as sort of service as sacrifice, you know. But we don't understand that it's it's work. I mean, the, the Pentagon is an employer and yes. people work for the Pentagon. And what is the nature of this work? And and how does that affect people when they stop doing that work? And that's really the, the first part of the book is wow. <clears throat> is really about the military's work and the and the Pentagon is is a really reckless employer that that really isn't um you know, concerned with the safety of of the people who work for it. And that's another thing. You know, people think safety, you know, service members, safety, that those two things seem like, you know, antithetical because after all, you're being trained to go to war. So you're, you're being put in an unsafe position. But most people never go into combat and there are many safety issues that occur in training on bases. And then when they're in combat, there are ways to make them safer. And the Pentagon has really been very bad at that. And that has a very big impact on people's lives after military service. Well explained, I must say. And Stephen Kinzer referred to game day celebration of veterans as with so many other aspects of our privileged American life, we just see what is right there on the surface and generally have no idea of the, the often extreme difficulties that it takes to get us there to make us happy consumers. The physical, emotional, social, economic, and psychological impact of military service and the problems that veterans face when they return to civil life, civilian life. We just, we don't see that. What are some examples of what Kinzer calls game day celebrations of veterans and the reactions of our veterans to such self-satisfying displays? Well, there's just so many. I mean, um, people, you know, at, at at football games and so forth, they just send, you know, they they there's just this constant thank you for your service, thank you for right. your service. I mean, I think the most distressing 
part is um, politicians who yeah. are are constantly um, trumpeting their patriotism and how much they love the troops and support the troops and support veterans. And then when it comes time to pay the piper, you know, they right. don't want to spend money while they're just throwing money at the Pentagon. And this has been true you know, since the Revolutionary War. I mean, Americans' history of ill-treating veterans goes all the way back to, you know, when the the soldiers in the Revolutionary War were paid in pretty much useless money. Yeah. And officers were treated better, and, and but, you know, regular folks lost their farms. And, you know, it was true in the Civil War where conservative politicians, you know, were like, we're not going to help you know, veterans, they should be pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps, even if they didn't have leg, you know, legs and feet to put in Jeez. boots. And, you know, then you saw 19 in the 30s, you know, the, the march, the bonus march where World War II veterans were promised pensions, but they had to wait for years and years. And then came the Depression and they marched on Washington. And, you know, generals like Eisenhower and Patton, um, you know, attacked the bonus marchers. Um, and so you just, you know, Vietnam vets had to fight for recognition of PTSD. They had to get fight for recognition of Agent Orange. And now we see the same thing, you know, with this PACT Act, which covers not just exposures to burn pits, but all kinds of toxic exposures that people have experienced. And the Republicans, you know, didn't want to spend the money and, and, and for, as you pointed out in the beginning, for a few days, actually torpedoed the bill. And, and you know, there were veterans camped out in front of Congress. A couple, a couple people reportedly, um, you know, died by suicide because they were so oh distressed. And then, and then finally, um, you know, they came through. But there's just this performative patriotism we call it you know and it's very easy to say thank you for your service but the real thank you is getting you a, a new job or you know a decent job not just you know a job in an amazon warehouse yeah. warehouse where jeff bezos can say oh you know i help veterans and oh i know uh, it, it it's amazing just the the surfacey aspect of it and you mentioned that that recent uh, rather astounding uh, episode in in Washington with the with some of the Republican senators. John Stewart became quite a hero when he, yes, he... very publicly took on those senators who voted against it. It, it did shock many Americans to see th these alleged friends of veterans, big veteran supporters, turn their backs on them. What what, what was the story there? How could they justify? Uh, not providing treatment to victims of burn pit injuries. What what was well, their I mean, this, this this dates back to to 2014 when Bernie Sanders, um, you know, introduced a bill in February of 2014 that would have given the VA 21 billion dollars to take care of veterans, which it desperately needed them to take care of, you know, even people with burn pit related illnesses and the Republicans torpedoed the bill um, because it, you know, and then, and, and then introduced a bill that was gave much less money to the VA and also assured that they spend it not on facility, VA facility infrastructure improvement or hiring more staff, but um, on sending people to the private sector. And the story with the, with the recent burn pit debacle was that, 
you know, Manchin announced his support of the of the of the president's reconciliation right. bill, and the Republicans were so angry that I mean, this happened exactly when they were debating the PACT Act, the burn pit, you know, the Toxic Exposure Act, and they the the Republicans torpedoed it because they were in a fit of pique and furious yeah. at you know at this deal, and then of course there were so many protests. It was so sure. astonishing because people who had, you know, said they would vote for it said suddenly said no, basically, you know, kind of just ignoring all this performative patriotism. And and so finally they did pass it, thankfully, yes. thankfully. But, yes. I mean, this was a really, you know, can, the anguish that was created in those few days between the um, – between the the no and the yes was was is was extraordinary and i think really a sign of of how thin deep skin deep a lot of this stuff really is you know um they they're constantly saying i mean again you know one has to look at, at the money thrown at the pentagon i mean we all these wasteful weapon systems i mean we have yes. You know, I mean, it's astonishing, like all the the stuff we have that we'll never use, thankfully, hopefully, and and you know, and and even systems that are useless and wasteful and don't work. And we have a VA system or a healthcare system. We have a benefit system, you know, that we don't support. We won't every penny is it's it's given grudgingly. So. Um, I think that's the, you know, and, and I think it's really important to recognize here, you know, that there's a lot of sort of VA bashing, you know, the VA doesn't do this, the VA doesn't do that. But the Department of Veterans Affairs is, is run essentially by Congress. And if there's something wrong there, it's Congress. It's Congress's failure to allocate money. It's Congress's failure to exercise appropriate oversight. Um, and And it's Congress's you know, kind of unwillingness to pay the cost of war. And the cost of war isn't just combat. You know, it's the cost of, of having a military and serving in the military and um, and dealing with the occupational health hazards. I mean, it, you know, just to give you an idea, the, you, you don't ever have to leave the continental United States and, and go into combat to have horrible problems with your back, your neck, your shoulders, your feet. I mean, I talked to one young man who served in the Marines. He actually, you know, and he had never gone into combat and he had such flat feet as a result of carrying these huge packs around and doing mm. these extreme exercises. He's 28 years old and he's in constant pain. Mm. I mean, flat from flat feet, you know, flat feet. And, um, you know, people have... Um, uh, all kinds of problems. Even one of the big problems that that happens in the military is that people get into huge debt because it doesn't pay very well, you know. And um, and then th- in order to get people to re-enlist, you know, they they often tolerate the the Pentagon tolerates you know these kind of car dealers and people offering the, you know, these young guys who get a signing bonus. Um, you know, get it, you know, they'll offer them a signing bonus and then they, you know, they come on to the ship or, or if it's the Navy and try to sell them these fancy new cars and then they buy a new car and they get into debt and then they have to re-enlist. And so oh, they get out of the oh, military. Geez. They get it. And the other thing that's really interesting is that 
to move around so much in the military, often the spouse of a or partner of a service member, whether male or female, can't get a second job because most of us in America, in order to make ends meet, need two incomes. But it's very hard to have a second job if you're moving every five years or yeah. three years or whatever. So the the spouse or partner of the of the uh, military service member often can't get a job, and that leads to debt. And so then you get into debt, then you leave the military with debt. And then, you know, most veterans who are, who are most mass majority of veterans who are enlisted people, they're not the right. officer class. The officer class does very well. Right. But like, you know, but um, the average military, you know, the average Marine or, or, or um, soldier or sailor or whatever, airman, crew, crew person, um, air person doesn't, doesn't, you know, do so well. And, um, I mean, one of the things we should talk about is the impact of the mil- of the huge amount of of uh, sort of privatization of the military to military contractors and how that impacts the job opportunities of veterans. Well, I'd certainly like to do that. And for those who just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're talking about an aspect of it that people don't want to look at and that it it seems pretty clear that the the pentagon is not a very uh good employer they don't treat their employees i.e military people particularly well at least at the lower end of the uh, officer etc class our guest today is uh, suzanne gordon senior policy analyst at the veterans Healthcare policy institute and co-author of a new book our veterans winners losers friends and enemies on the new terrain of veterans affairs and it does seem like as with so if anybody's read about any military conflicts you know the officers get to requisition uh nice places to stay and get better food and stuff like that so that it seems to me suzanne from what you're saying is that continues over into uh into when they when they become uh just private citizens there's so much uh, difficulty for these former employees. It's it's rather astounding. And I have wondered, so often on TV we see wounded warriors and things like that, and I'm thinking, why do they have to go begging? It, it's, just, it's, it's just so wrong with all the, I mean, as you pointed out, the, the weapons contractors get more than they can even hope for. Uh, and yet... Here, these is there. What about the budget? Is it not part of the? I think a lot of people would think that, of course, uh, taking care of veterans is in the uh, Department of Defense budget. What's the reality? No, there? no, no. So the reality, and I'm so glad you mentioned that because the reality, and many people think that. Many people think that the Department of Veterans Affairs, which is like the third largest department in in the U.S. government. Um, it, it is they, they think that 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 their budget, the VA budget, comes out of the Department of Defense. That's not true. The Department of Defense has its own budget, discussion about its budget, and it's allocated. And the VA has its own budget, and it's way less than the Department of Defense. And when the the costs of war are calculated, and you of course you remember, you know that all these wars are gonna take a couple of months, right? They, I mean, it's just astonishing. You know, I'm reading about World War II and, 
And it was like, oh, it's going to be over in three months. Like, right. I, I mean, it's just we never learn. You know, these wars are never over in three months. No. And <laughs> and um, and but the in, in calculating the costs of war, um, they never calculate the costs of caring for the people who will be injured in war or or even in military service. Because I, you know, I'm I'm constantly, um explaining to people because people think that, you know, the, the, pa- the patient population or the, the people who get the GI bill or whatever for educational purposes, mm-hmm. um, that they have all served in combat. And that's not true. These are a benefit of, of serving in, uh, in, in some capacity in the active duty military. And, um, you know, the, these, these, these budgets are not, calculated in the cost of war and sort of, you know, they're what's called discretionary. Mm. And, and so that means that it's at the discretion of Congress, you know, to increase them, reduce them, whatever. And, and it's a fight. And, you know, there's a great project at Brown university with a wonderful researcher called Linda um, Bilmes, and it's called the cost of war project. And, Right. You know, they calculate that if you were really to truly pay the cost of war, the real cost, and, and that's just, you, you know, of military service, right? You would be paying way more than we, we are willing to pay. And if we, if the American public were, were you know, given a, I mean, it, it would be a very interesting yeah. exercise, you know, to have a referendum on do you want to spend this much? What does the meaning for society? And you know, for, for communities. Um, and it's the broader community too, you know, because we, I mean, the veteran, while veterans, because of the choice to go to the all volunteer military in 1973, it's a very small percent of the population that right. serve in the military, right. but they have children and they have wives and they have husbands and they have partners and, you know, they have communities and they have, I mean, the impact of, of, of military service isn't isn't just yeah. on the veteran, you know. It's on the the, the veteran's child. I mean, it was very interesting to me when I was writing Wounds of War, which was my previous book about about veterans' healthcare issues. And you'd often be talking to some, often a man, but not necessarily, who had PTSD from mm-hmm. from Iraq or Afghanistan, and then you'd learn that his father had. PTSD from Vietnam and his grandfather had PTSD for World War II. You know, these are, you know, PTSD, (laughs) just to take one signature illness of military service, makes people irritable, angry, and so forth. And that impacts their children, right? And then their children. There was a wonderful um, PBS, I think it was PBS documentary that we talk about in the book, um, I think it was called Father, Soldier, Son, and it was showed about a guy who had gone to fight in Iraq and gotten gotten his leg hurt and eventually had an amputation. And he was a single father, and his children suffered so much from his PTSD, and then they ended up getting, you know, serious problems. Boy, and to think that, what we're talking about here—that's discretionary. I mean, how? I—I'm—I'm I'm trying to imagine being, you know, somebody in that position, who's got these wounds that that hurt his or her entire family, 
and to know that they are considered discretionary? Well, treating huh. them is, is considered discretionary. But, you know, an, an interesting thing that, that we haven't touched on, Bert, sure. um, is, and I think this very few people know about this, is that not all veterans are, are eligible for benefits that they were promised uh, when they were recruited into the service. And one of the things that determines eligibility is your discharge status from the military. And the military has a tendency to <clears throat> discharge people in a way that denies them benefits from the VA. And this is something very few Americans know about. So not all veterans are, are eligible for care and benefits. Is that what you're saying? No, because they that there's a number of different categories of discharge, of military discharge. And right. one of one um, in order to get VA benefits, the VA has basically failed to honor the law. But more importantly, the military discharges people with what is called an other than honorable discharge. Right. And these discharges are given to people who display some kind of behavior that the military doesn't like. And often this behavior, like getting in a fight on the weekend or showing up at formation late a couple times or getting drunk or whatever, these behaviors Yikes. that the military deems problematic, and they are problematic and, and hurt um, you know, sure. unit cohesion, um, these behaviors are often displayed because the person has traumatic brain injury, known as a TBI, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, some sort of problem they're self-medicating for. Sure. They may have suffered from military sexual trauma. Um, I think it's like one in four women in the military have experienced some sort oh, of, of military sexual trauma, which, sure. which is something we should discuss. The misogyny in the military is really bad. Right. And so they get they get what's called chaptered out of the military service <clears throat> because they are problem children, as it were, huh. and they may and they're not deployable. And, um, you know, Jeez. unit commanders, and officers' promotions depend on how many deployable people um, they have in their unit. And so these people are not deployable and takes a long time to get rid of them. And they don't want to go through the medical discharge process, so they they can kind of get rid of them with these other than honorable discharges. And since 1980, we have about 600,000 people with these other than honorable discharges. Mm -hmm. And Congre Congress, once again, it comes down to Congress, has not dealt with these, this problem. Um, there's a wonderful group um, <clears throat> in San Francisco called Swords to Plowshares. Um, and then the Harvard, and people at Harvard have um, petitioned the VA <clears throat> to be more welcoming to um, these people with other than honorable discharges, because right now they are not allowed to get um, VA healthcare benefits or VA educational benefits. There's another group of people that get get what's called a general discharge, oh. and they can get VA benefits, but they can't get the GI Bill. So we interviewed a guy for a book named Christopher Goldsmith, who's a very active veteran, and he tried to commit suicide or mm. tried in 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 Iraq 
when he learned that he was going to be redeployed, you know, deployed again. And basically they said, okay, you know, um, we'll court martial you or give you a general discharge. And he was at that point, I think 20 and, you know, and, and had serious mental problems and he took the general discharge. And so the good news is he got VA benefits and, and as he put it with the help of the VA, he put his life together again but he was unable to get educational benefits. So the good news is, you know, he's he puts his life together with the help of the VA and he's ready to rock and roll and go to Columbia and, and he doesn't get the educational benefits that he was promised. And And this is the kind of stuff that goes on all the time that Congress allows to go on because it refuses to exercise oversight over the Department of Defense and the practices of the Department of Defense. I mean, even this burn pit stuff, I mean, you know, why was this allowed to go on? Why, why was this allowed to go on? Um, <clears throat> this is, a, this is an, a preventable problem. I mean, these people who have burn pit related problems from Iraq and Afghanistan and other places where we, they have served, um, these people are alive, you know, they didn't die. They, they could have made it out much more healthy, um, living much mm -hmm. easier lives, right? And they were subject to stuff that was entirely elective, right? I mean, there are obviously certain things that the, the Pentagon can't prevent unless we don't go to war, which that's obviously, in my view, often, you know, the best answer. But these were preventable problems, and they didn't act to solve them they knew what the problems were while these people were experiencing these mm. problems and they you know and that's wow. inexcusable that is inexcusable for sure for those who may have just tuned in bert cohen here the show is keeping democracy alive and we're talking about something that people oftentimes don't want to look at and that's really the human costs of war and of our uh, military budget. Our guest today is uh, uh, Suzanne Gordon, who is a co-author of a new book, Our Veterans, Winners, Losers, Friends, and Enemies on the New Terrain of Veterans Affairs. Well, as you talk about Congress not doing its job, not doing the oversight, does that not bring up the question of, well, why not privatization? Maybe they could do it better. Yes, well, that is, but and that is the 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 currently accepted um, solution to problems anywhere in our society. I mean, privatize public yeah, schools. Right. You know, privatize don't have public housing. Um, <clears throat> you know, um, I mean, we're privatizing the military by um, having so many jobs being done by private contractors yes. who we pay more for. Um, and so there is the we're privatizing the military healthcare system, which is something very few people know about. The military used to have a much more robust healthcare system, and now they're trying yeah. to put everybody into the Tricare private insurance system. And so you're losing the ability to help families with people who are expert in their particular problems. And the same is true of what's going on with um, the the Veterans Health Administration, which is the you know, the the um, largest sub-agency of the Department of Veterans Affairs, which has, Department of Veterans Affairs has the 
largest healthcare system in the country, the largest benefit system in the country, the Veterans Benefits Administration, and um, the National Cemetery Administration. And, you know, the, the, so the solution now of choice, and this is a solution of choice, a, a tragic bipartisan consensus of not just um, of de- uh, Republicans, but of many Democrats. Right. And they, since 2014, have been sending people out to the private sector instead of the VA, because that way, you know, you don't have to give money to repair um, aging hospitals. I mean, every hospital in America is aging, you yes. know, just like every human being in, in America is aging. Right. I mean, Johns Hopkins was started in the, in the 19th century, you know, mm. it, it has aging buildings. I mean, I grew up, my father was a famous physician and ophthalmologist and he practiced at New York hospital and, you know, that hospital, I mean, I isn't the same hospital today as it was when I ran around its halls when I was two years old in, you know, 1947. I mean, so this thing about aging facilities is kind of like, well, of course they're aging. I mean, right. the minute you build them, they start aging, you know. And the question isn't whether they're aging. It's whether you've renovated them and maintained them. And Congress won't do that. It won't Amazing. allocate the money you know, for these hospitals to engage in the kind of routine maintenance. Now, mind you, that said, every VA hospital has to be past various state and federal accreditations so and licensing, and they wouldn't be allowed to operate if they were in really bad shape. They could be in better shape, you know. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, here's an interesting thing. I mean, every time somebody builds some wonderful new VA facility and and, you know, decorates it in a beautiful fashion. The Republicans complain, um, you know, why are you spending money on art for veterans? Right. Well, I mean, and this was something, this was something that happened under in the, in um, around, I think it was 2017 or something. Jeff Miller, who was a tea party Republican who was um, at that and, and had been in real estate. I mean, so he was like really well qualified um, to to comment on health issues. He he attacked the VA because it spent something like $10 million. No, I think it was $5 million over 10 years to put art in its hospitals. Meanwhile, the Wall Street Journal and all these other right-wing newspapers are complimenting private sector hospitals for spending money yeah. on art. On art. So, you know, and and according to Miller, it was a waste of time. Well, there's a reason why you spend art, you know, you want your hospital wards to look nice and have art in them because it's healing. Yes. You know, it's like show it's like allowing people to see green space when they're in after surgery. We know that that you know they heal faster. But the Republicans attacked the VA for spending 5 million or dollars over 10 years which which was something like i don't know point zero 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 nine percent of the va budget was being spent on this art and often the private spender sector would spend you know five million dollars on one piece of art yeah and they so you know there's this constant there's this constant refrain in washington of you know give it to the private sector the private sector can do it better and um, in fact, the VA does it better. The Veterans Health Administration, um, which is the largest and only um, 
fully integrated healthcare system in the country, it does it better um, not only for veterans but for all of us because one of the things most people don't know is that the VA, the VHA, the Veterans Health Administration, right. doesn't only serve veterans. It has four missions, one of which is serving veterans. The second is teaching the nation's healthcare professionals and training. So the VA has probably taught your doctor, you know, the people who are listening in. Mm. Um, I mean, in New Hampshire, Dartmouth Hitchcock, Hitchcock has a, is the medical affiliate, the uh, academic affiliate with the White River Junction VA, you know, in Massachusetts, um, it's, it's uh, VU in, in San Francisco, it's UCSF. All these, all these large VA medical centers have affiliations and they train um, doctors, psychologists, nurses. It's the biggest training program mm. in the country for medical professionals. It's also the biggest research program, one of the biggest research programs after the National Institutes of Health, um, because the third mission of the VA is research, conducting research that will help veterans. And in the process of conducting research to help veterans, you help everyone. You know, this is not proprietary. I mean, when they developed the nicotine patch uh. or the shingles vaccine, they didn't, you know, say, oh, no, no, yeah, for veterans. And finally, the fourth mission, which which we saw really under in the COVID pandemic, the fourth mission is to um, to serve uh, to to serve as a backup to the nation's healthcare system in a time of a national emergency. And the VA did that. Uh, it opened its units in New York and New Jersey and Louisiana and various other places to civilian sector patients in White River Junction. Um, mm. They mm. they let in because they're, you know, New, New Hampshire and Vermont have such problems with getting uh, mental health professionals. Um, civilians can get treated at the VA sometimes for mental health problems. Um, so the VA is, is you know, you're, if you privatize the VA, you're destroying not only the clinical care and the expertise um, of, of people who have spent decades developing expertise in veteran care, but you're also destroying the ability of the VA to serve as the hub of, of healthcare professional training, the VA to conduct research that benefits us all, and the VA to, to deliver its fourth mission, which is to help us all in times of national, local, and regional emergencies. Mm. And I will tell you, this show is heard mainly uh, in the western part of these currently United States, uh, not just uh, New Hampshire and Vermont, even though I'm coming from there. And many Americans, are more and more, I think, are starting to recognize, recognize that socialized medicine is not the boogeyman. It's not something to be afraid of, that it works well in pretty much all modern countries, all industrialized countries, socialized medicine. The VA is an example of socialized medicine, I think, and it's thought to be generally good. It delivers care that is more integrated, more coordinated, and oftentimes of higher quality and lower cost than almost any other healthcare system in the U.S. It, 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 it still continues to be characterized as troubled, dysfunctional, scandal-ridden. How do you explain that contradiction? Well, the contradiction is, 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 is a really great question. Um, the, the, the reputation that the VA gets is entirely due to the efforts of 
um, the Koch brothers funded Concerned Veterans for America and other Koch brothers groups like the Pacific Research Institute and the American Enterprise Institute and all kinds of groups that they fund um, to attack government involvement right, in right. anything. I mean, these are people who, you know, would take away stop signs. I mean, they're such <laughs> radical libertarians that they probably don't they believe in red lights and stop signs. It's True. Like, you know, well, if you kind of feel like it, you know, like, um, and they reject any notion of the public or the public good right. um, or Excellent. the fact that we can't, you know, just help ourselves through private charities. And, you know, we saw the the failure. I mean, part of the privatization solution is not just that you privatize services, you know, and, and send them to for-profit corporations, but that you depend on private philanthropy. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in, in, the, in the case of the VA or veterans, I mean, during COVID, most of these private philanthropies are very small. They, yes. the vast majority of them have, you know, maybe three months reserves on hand and they were just unable to cope, um, with, with this disastrous, um, uh, situation that they were confronted with and, um, they didn't have the money to help. And, um, so the, the bad reputation of the VA is due to the really ceaseless efforts of these groups to tarnish the reputation. And most people don't read, you know, the, the most people who listen to Fox News or even the New York yeah. Times don't read the British Medical Journal where the latest study showed that if a veteran went to a private sector emergency room because they had Medicare or they went to a VA, they were twice as likely to die in the private sector hospital in the first 28 days because the care is fragmented and uncoordinated and often unnecessary and futile. Um, They don't read those studies, you know, they don't read studies that they don't read health affairs like I do, which is a, you know, healthcare journal and, and read the latest issue, which is about the disaster of diabetes, diabetes treatment in the private sector. And then they don't read the, you know, the, the, the study that the scientific study that showed that VA management of chronic illnesses like diabetes is much better you know, than the private sector. I mean, you know, so people, and and neither do the journalists who write about the VA because many of them are not healthcare journalists. Um, You know, it's tragic. I mean, the the reporters at the Washington Post or the New York Times or even NPR, you know, who are assigned to the veterans issues are usually sort of more political reporters. And the healthcare reporters who are healthcare reporters and know something about healthcare don't know anything about the VA, so they don't report on the VA. I mean, occasionally they will. The New York Times ran a very good piece about how um, the private sector should <clears throat> learn from and adapt um, VA models of suicide prevention treatment. Oh, wow. um, but, um, you know, so there's this kind of, you know, this this there, there's a civilian military divide, interestingly, even in the reporting um, and the mm. conceptualization, you know, the reporting of, of veterans' issues in the press, I think, and the media. Well, for sure. And I, I do think in so many instances, like uh, our sources of power, you know, the various electronic devices that we have, we don't think about how we get the components for that. You know, a lot of, 
you know, there's a lot of exploitation and incredibly unhealthy situations. But we just look at, oh, here's what we get, you know, let's praise the veteran, let's thank the veteran and just go on with our daily life and don't give it another thought. That seems, yeah, well, it, it seems to yeah. be what happens. For those yeah. of you who have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is co-author Suzanne Gordon, co-author of Our Veterans, Winners, Losers, Friends, and Enemies on the New Terrain of Veterans Affairs. We're talking about uh, uh, veterans affairs. And uh, Suzanne, you were just about to say something. Well, no, I mean, I think it's very interesting because one of the things that we write about in our book is um, the so-called service candidate. You know, the idea that if you that somehow right. veterans could could be that that we should have more veterans in Congress, and of course we used to have more veterans in Congress because when we had the draft, I mean, hmm. you know, um, everybody well not everybody but a lot of people served in different classes, and so you know it was very likely that if you had men in Congress, which right. we then did right. almost exclusively, which right. was not a good thing. You know, they would have been likely to have served in the military because people did. Right. Um, and and today that's that's no longer the case. So there's this this push. I mean, Bezos, Jeff Bezos at Amazon started some group that, you know, to try to promote more veterans um, going into Congress. And he had this ludicrous idea that, you know, somehow being a military veteran would make you know more about foreign and military foreign policy, which is not true. I mean, the fact that you go to Iraq, you know, to to serve in, the, in combat does not mean that you learn anything about Iraqi culture, you know, um, or, or hang out with Iraqi people unless they're people who work on military bases, you know, right. uh, which is not the average Iraqi or Afghani, you know. Um, and we also see how we treat our help, the people who've helped us after the war was no. these wars only leave. Really? But um, you know, the, there's also this notion that that you know people learn sort of critical thinking in the military, and that's really not, not what military indoctrination is no. about. I mean, it's about <laughs> making people obedient. Yes. Um, and 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 so you know, and and many of the the few people who you know sir, have served in the military in Congress um, are not very bipartisan. I mean, I don't know why you know it's some sort of ridiculous idea that because you've served in the military, you're going to be right. bipartisan, and and that's just not true. And there is certainly uh, no evidence that anybody who is a veteran is challenged. Um, you know these huge Pentagon budgets and and these. Uh, you know, foreign and military policies that will send more people to unnecessary wars. I mean, right. there's an interesting race right now in, in New York State between two veterans in, in, in New York City for Congress. And one is, is Max Rose, and mm -hmm. who's a kind of, you know, centrist corporate Democrat, and Brittany um, ramos Barros, who is a an, also an Iraq vet who's a woman, and she you know, is is much more of a challenger of um, these kind of foreign policy adventures. But, you know, the corporate Democrats and the Democratic Party is putting all its money into Rose's campaign. And, um, there, you know, when you have an interesting challenger um, who has is more critical of America's foreign military policy and who's a Democrat, uh, sadly, the Democrats tend to favor 
the much more pro yes. Pentagon people, the people who don't really ask serious questions about the cost of war. Yeah, they just, these politicians of both parties uh, at the national level, uh, to a large extent, they just look at, at the surface of it and, you know, what, like what the easy uh, picture may be and, and don't look below the surface. And you've talked about women a couple of times in, in last few minutes, and I wanted to get back to the misogyny factor. I mean, let's let's face it, military, when you think about military, it's been for a few hundred years men dominating and controlling through violence. How is that not going to carry over into... Uh... Well, it's not It's not a couple of centuries. It's eons. I mean, yeah. well, I mean, the military is very misogynist, and yes, they really haven't nature. dealt yes. with it. And I think that, you know, there's this, you know, don't be a... I mean, the worst thing you can call somebody in the military is, is you know, be a woman, you know, or, or, or yeah. the homo... There's also a tremendous amount of homophobia, right? And um, I think that... Um, it's really clear that this that we have terrible statistics on on the amount of um, you know sexual predation yes. in the military, um, whether it's uh, um, just harassment or rape or um, right. even murder yes. of women. Um, I mean, it's pretty extreme. Yeah, and um, and the the situation isn't getting any better and the military really hasn't done very much to address this thing called military sexual trauma, which by the way, doesn't only impact, um, you know, women, it it impacts men as well. And, um, and there's been attempts to introduce legislation to have outside people look at these cases and the Pentagon has been very much against that. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the disabled American veterans did a very <clears throat> interesting study on women in the military and something like 60% said that it had had a bad impact on their lives. I mean, um, and so it's, it's really a problem, um, you know, military service for women. It's a problem that could be addressed, but you have to really double down and um, the tolerance for the kind of sexual predation, yeah. the misogyny. I mean, there was a huge scandal um, a, a number of years ago uh, in, I think it was Iran, where, you know, they were, <laughs> taxpayer dollars were paying for sex trafficking. Um, I mean, it's quite the, it's 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 not a pretty picture. Um, it's a, I mean, I think that there's, you know, um, a number of groups that are really not, you know, they're not big enough, but they're trying to challenge this groups like, um, common defense. Um, and which is a, a group of progressive veterans, um, veterans for peace, um, about face. I mean, there are lots of, there are a number of smaller groups that are trying to challenge, the the military priorities of the of the United States and you know I think the other thing that needs to be addressed is that we need to learn the lessons of of um of the healthcare system the VA healthcare system and recognize that um all Americans deserve 
coordinated, integrated care rather than the kind of fragmented care that we get. And right. we should have a national health system that, you know, is like the VA and that delivers these high quality outcomes. And we need to promote those outcomes. I mean, one of the things that Congress won't let the VA do is promote, um, you know, to promote itself. I mean, to do mm. what PR, the bud, they don't give it the budget uh -huh. to have enough PR staff. And um, so, you know, the average hospital, large hospital has, you know, maybe 50 or 100 people. I mean, not the average, but a large, a really large hospital will have, you know, maybe 50 or 100 people promoting um, yeah. doing PR. And the VA has, you know, a couple people who have to do outreach to veterans and um, and all kinds of other things, as well as as reach out to the media. Um, and they really don't have enough staff. They don't have enough commitment at VA central office to promote um, the wonderful work they do. And so we don't know about it. Oh. And we can't we can't really be informed if we don't if we don't know about the work the system is doing. So then, you know, if, if we just hear from members, self-serving, obviously, members of Congress about uh, uh, scandal-ridden and dysfunctional, <laughs> troubled, but we don't hear the other side, that's kind of a problem. You suggest there are significant overlaps between veterans and labor issues, as well as alliances between their organizations, that they're Say say more about that. What what goals may be shared, and why is that an important uh, thing to be? Well, I mean, veterans were. I mean, military service members are workers, right? They they work. They work in the military. They don't just, you know, they have all kinds of jobs. I mean, they do laundry and cooking and logistics and work as secretaries and mechanics and airline. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, they do everything. You know. And then when they get out of the military, they, most of them, you know, the vast majority who aren't officers go into construction, hospitality, mm. transportation, the post office. I mean, the post office is a great example of a wonderful government job that many, many um, veterans go into. I mean, there are many veterans in the post office. And um, so the privatization of the post office, which is what uh. they want to do too, would deprive many military veterans of good paying jobs. Yeah, there, um, there are but, people who reject the the whole notion of the common good. And, and you know, we, we have, the post office has been doing its job quite well for a long time, and, and they want to just privatize everything and to heck with the with the average person that's just my take on it well a lot of people's take and there's the post office but uh, uh, another common career move for former soldiers is to trade their military uniform for a police uniform uh, right. and and that can you say that that can place the public at greater risk well it can place the public and obviously the former service member at greater risk i mean um there, there have been studies by the International Association of Police Chiefs where they really lament the fact that um, there's a veteran preference given um, to people who enter the police force um, or who, who are applied to the police force. And sometimes this skews, you know, it, it stops um, uh, police chiefs from having greater diversity in the police force because... Um, 
the they skew it skews whiter, you know, um, and more male. Um, also, <clears throat> people who served in the military are two to three times as likely to have engaged in um, drawn their weapon. Um, And if you take people who've been in combat uh, and you put, you know, because so much of, of, of combat and certainly in Iraq and Afghanistan was, was in um, particularly Iraq was in urban areas. And there was, Mm -hmm. you know, it's sort of hard to distinguish like the, the, you know, the, the civilian sector, you know, people from, from um, the, 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 that professional combatant. And so, um, you know, then you transport that person to a police a, a situation in urban America right. where there's a lot of tension. And, and it's very hard, you know, it's hard for them to distinguish the difference sure. between, you know, the military operation and the police operation. And so there's, you know, but more to the point, I think that, um, <clears throat> the fact that they have so many military contractors now, private sector contractors, doing jobs in the military that's, that former service members once did um, that could equip them more for civilian life, like, I don't know, mm. you know, mechanics or construction or, or cooking or whatever. So these people are, you, you know, are freed up to enter into actual combat situations and, um, it doesn't, you know, being in combat where you're where you're shooting at people or being shot at or knocking down doors or whatever, um, you know, that doesn't really equip you for much in civilian no. life, and you need retraining. That's for sure. And so, you know, that's not even even um, if you were a medic, right, um, or did you know medical work in the military, unless you were a physician. Um, you know, you have to get retrained. You have to get an RN, a registered nursing license, or a or a, a physician assistant license. So you have to go back to school. There's not, you know, you don't automatically walk into the military, even if you learn a civilian skill, and then be able to walk out because employers increasingly want um, people who are trained to do a job. Yes. There, it you know, 40 years ago, employers would do more training of people before they hired them. And now um, they do much less of that. So they want somebody who's kind of ready to hit the floor running. And, and so you, you, you know, you, that's why security work is often promoted to veterans rather than encouraging Uh, them to use their GI bill to get training, to do something else. I mean, that they might, that might be more less triggering for, for someone, for example, who has, PTSD or emotional problems. But we can, there are opportunities here. This has been very interesting. We need to look at what we don't really want to look at, especially if we always, you know, uh, game day celebrations and thank you for your service. Well, what about real thank yous for their service? This is an important area that uh, America really needs to look at. the book is called Our Veterans, Winners, Losers, Friends, and Enemies on the New Terrain of Veteran Affairs. Our, our guest today has been uh, co-author Suzanne Gordon. Thank you so much for being with us and for the important work that you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. If you like today's show, subscribe at the website, Keeping Democracy Alive, Stitcher, or Spotify, or iTunes. Don't miss a single one.